authored 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament. Now, I'm a professor, and it's summertime, so I've not been teaching. So I'm like craving a little bit of interaction. I'm craving like hands going up. So I want to ask a question real quickly. How many of you like have a Bible or access to a Bible in here right now? Anyone? Bibles? Okay, good. Extra spiritual points, extra spiritual points. No, I'm kidding. So I want to ask for a couple, uh, just to read one line of a book, of a letter of Paul. Uh, so if I can ask, would anyone um, look up for me real quickly, 1 Corinthians 1.1. 1, 1. 1 Corinthians 1.1. 1, 1. Anyone? 1 Corinthians 1.1. 1, 1. 1 Corinthians 1.1. 1, 1. All right, right here. 1 Corinthians 1.1. 1, 1. Okay, and then I'm, I'm going to assign a bunch of them, and then I'll have you read them. How about Colossians 1.1? 1, 1? Who will do Colossians 1.1? 1, 1? Colossians 1.1. 1, 1. Down. 1 Thessalonians 1.1. 1, 1. 1 Thessalonians 1 1, right there. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 1 1. And then lastly, and this is the, the text that we're going to be camping in today, Philippians 1 1. Philippians 1 1. All right, Liz, Philippians 1 1. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 1 1. Let's, let's listen to the author of this letter. Whoever has 1 Corinthians 1 1. All right, perfect. Oh, goodness gracious. So, did Paul write 1 Corinthians? He co-authored it. It was a group ordeal. So it's Paul and Sosthenes to the church in Corinth. We normally don't think about that, but that's what Paul and Sosthenes are telling us. Okay, uh, next one, Colossians. And Timothy, our brother. Interesting. Okay, so now we have Paul and Timothy. Uh, 1 Thessalonians. Who has 1 Thessalonians? Okay. Interesting. Now we have a trio authoring this letter. 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, by the way. 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians written uh, as a group. And then Philippians 1.1. Last, the last one I'll have you read today. Philippians 1.1. Yeah, Philippians 1.1. Liz, bring it to us. And you can't move, by the way. We've all decided. You're not allowed. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Woo, victory. Let's all go home. We can pray and close. All right, Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. Okay, well, that's, that's the, the second half of it. The first piece, I'll, I'll, I'll belt it out since it's going to be our text we'll be camping on a little bit. Philipp, thank you so much, Liz. Philippians 1, 1, Paul and Timothy, douloi, slaves or bondservants, slaves of Christ Jesus to all God's people uh, in Philippi together with overseers and deacons. And then he prays that beautiful prayer about how much he has affection for them. So what are we finding out? We're finding out already that Paul doesn't, he does a lot of things not solo. He does write a few letters by himself, but for the most part, he's writing these things in community. And if you read the front end or the back end of most of his letters, you're going to also see a bunch of folks being named, standing up and saying, hey, here's this person. Say hi to them. I want you to meet these people. You're going to love this crew. Check them out. So uh, I did a, a, I was able to, close off our Roman series a couple like weeks or months ago, I forget when it was, and I, I was able to do 
my favorite chapter in all of Romans, which is Romans chapter 16. It's the credit reel, if you remember that. And it's the greatest picture because what you find in Romans 16 is this beautiful tapestry of a bunch of different folks of different ages, ethnicities, genders, and statuses that are all working together, united in this glorious adventure of bringing great, great news to hurting ears, to people that are hungry for truth. And there, it's just this list of all these folks. So we find Paul is always running around, constantly, beautifully enmeshed in community and doing work together. So whenever we think about Paul, especially in kind of our 21st century celebrity culture that we have, where we always like to think about one person that's kind of the one and the mega star, whether it's in ministry or it's in like pop culture, we need to kind of rethink and tweak that a little bit. Paul himself is telling us, hey, y'all, this is my crew here. So I wanted to look at them. We can't obviously go through the whole lineup. It would take us like weeks and weeks to get through everybody. But what I'd like us to think about uh, tonight today, whatever it is right now, I want us to think about um, this crew and how is it that the rascals, renegades, radicals, and I added another one in the blurb this Sunday, rebels. They're a little rebellious. They got a little rebellious spirit in a real good way, in a real sweet way. They have this rebellion. How is it they're rebellious? Because if you met them, if we all took a time machine and we headed back to uh, Roman Corinth or Roman Philippi or Rome itself, and we were able to kind of meet these people, and then we looked at the world they lived in, you wouldn't really be able to distinguish them much from their clothing and dress, from maybe the music that they heard. You would not be able to distinguish them from their occupations or physical appearance. They would look a lot alike, and they would indeed think a lot alike and do things like many in their culture. But in one particular way, they were totally swimming upstream. I, I put it in the blurb. Um, we used to live in uh, on Catalina Avenue in Knob Hill, and so whenever there was the Super Bowl 5K, we could watch it run by our house. So I would like lazily just sit there with like a bagel and coffee as people sweat on the brink of, of exhaustion. And one year was awesome. It's like claustrophobic running conditions, as you know, like in these races and everyone's kind of running packed in. But there was just three people that were dressed in these trout outfits, these giant trout, and they were running in the opposite direction through the crowd. It was like the coolest thing in the world, like totally swimming upstream. And in one sense, I want, to, I want us to see today that this crew Paul rolls with, they're doing that in one real amazing area where they look very strange and they are actively stumbling trying to figure it out but running upstream against the stream of culture and in many other ways they're going right with the stream of culture so it's not like everything they do is totally weird but one thing they do at least if not more is totally weird so to see what is so weird um I want to do a little history lesson. So I am a historian, and you're going to get history lessons if I preach at least one out of every two sermons. So what I'd like us to think about is, first of all, the Roman way of being human, the Roman way of doing things. And then I want to look at Jesus' way, look at the Motley Ministry crew way, think about our way in rapid succession, the last couple. Um, Human civilization. From the dawn of sedentary populations settling down, raising crops in Mesopotamia until this very day, all human societies, no matter what they say, all human societies have reinvented and reinvented and reinvented one particular thing. And I brought it with me. Do you want to see it? Yes, you do. Todd, would you bring it up here? Here it is. It is this right here. Every human society, safety first, every human society 
has invented this thing. From the dawn of writing that we can actually ascertain what humans are doing, human beings were dividing up societies based on status, rank, wealth, different things. There, it's just a reality, good, bad, or ugly, it's real. There were always certain individuals in almost every society we can trace, especially in antiquity, that would be considered bottom rung folks. That is, they are slaves, they are ownable. They are literally human beings that can be owned and used like tools in the minds of those higher up on the ladder. And then there was those that mattered the most in a society that could be maybe a monarch, it could be an aristocracy. The Roman Empire and Roman civilization, especially during the time in which our letters are coming to us in the first century, may, that may just have been the society that perfected, not maybe in a good way, but they really worked on this ladder and were most scrupulously paying attention to it and organizing their society around it. If you were born, boy or girl, in the ancient Mediterranean world, in the Roman Mediterranean, you were brought up in a world in which you were acutely aware of precisely where you fit on the social ladder. Statuses were fixed. Some of them could be mobile, but upward mobility was, was definitely a difficult thing. But you were either somewhere between the bottom and the top, and the bottom would be indeed slaves. You were ownable. You were the lowest status. And I want you to think not about wealth here so much, because many slaves were more wealthy than some freed people. Well, former slaves would have been more wealthy than many freed people. It's not so much about the wealth, it's about the honor. It's about the way in which, here's a good example. How many of you remember junior high school? Sh shivers run through the crowd. Oh, don't take me back there. No, right, junior high. Remember junior high? You went to school and you just knew who was cool and who wasn't cool. And it wasn't like it was written down anywhere or the principal came out and read a list every week. All right, here's the cool kids. You know who you are. Here's the other kids. James, I'm looking at you, right, towards the bottom. You just knew where you could sit, who you could talk to, what kind of parties. You're really lucky if you got invited to and it might be a prank where they're all gonna bring you there and make fun of you. Like, you knew where you stood. It was, and we grew out of it a little bit, thankfully, hopefully. If you're still running around trying to be cool and you're 40 years old, you got to do something else with your life, okay? But like in junior high, it mattered a lot. Money didn't matter so much. It was nice, but the rich kids weren't the cool kids, always. But the cool kids were the cool kids. And I remember where I was. I was kind of like bottom rung, but like I could reach sometimes to that second piece. I could kind of reach like this and then quickly be snapped back down to the bottom generally. But... This is how Roman society would operate. And knowing where you were at, whether you were a born of, of a noble bloodline, a senator or equestrian, or you were born uh, of a slave family, or um, the poor freed people in urban context, wherever you were, these identities stuck with you. It's, it was displayed in how you dressed specifically. You would wear particular clothes. You wouldn't wear other clothes. Even in like public entertainment. Imagine going to a game. Today, how, how do we arrange seating? Basically, you could pay for an expensive seat. But hey, if you middle-income person, you could buy a box seat and blow, blow the, the bank account for a little bit for one weekend and get a nice seat. You could do that. In the Roman world, you literally had to sit according to rank, status, and even gender sometimes. So these were fixed. And you knew one thing as a young boy or girl, particularly boy, it was a man's world, as James Brown once put it. Um, <laughs> In, in ancient Rome, but you knew the goal was to move up as much as you possibly can at all costs in honor. 
upward mobility, and you desperately, desperately protected your family honor. Okay, so that's the goal. That's the ladder. And I want you to understand, in the society, there was one person, watch this, one person who would be, like, up here. Guess what? If I fall, workers' comp claim, not a big deal. I'm kidding. No, how'd you fall off that ladder? What were you doing up there? Look at that. I worked my calves this week. Here's the emperor. One step up would be like the gods, right? The deities. Top of the ladder. On down, freed people, freed slaves, and slaves. This was the world. This is how it was. This is how it was. Okay, that's the Roman way. Now, knowing that, I want to read you something that Paul wrote to the, Corinthians, uh, to the, to the uh, Philippians, uh, Roman veterans colony who knew all about rank, honor, and status. And, he, and now as I read this to you, what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to think about, I'm moving this over here for carpeted landing just in case. What I'd like you to think about or I'd like you to do is put your Roman lenses on now, okay? So your lenses, you understood something about Roman status, rank, and honor. Put those lenses on, put those like earbuds in, and listen to this through those channels. It's Philippians 2, starting in verse 1. He's writing to this church of people who, by the way, had become followers of Jesus, but they came out of this system. They didn't come from like a blank slate, They came out of the system. This is all they had known. They'd been socialized as boys and girls through this. And here's what he says to them. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the spirit, any tenderness, compassion, then make my joy complete by being made, being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, one in mind. Verse 3, do nothing, nothing out of selfish ambition or, or vain conceit. Canodoxia, that's this, like, this term of like going for that glory. Don't do anything going for glory. That's not what this is about. Rather, in humility, tapenophrosune, my favorite Greek word, tapenophrosune, literally it was a term that in the, the sort of lexicon of Rome, it, it would describe slaves or, sorry, ladies, women. It was a, it was a sort of weak trait in the minds of a Roman patriarch. Tapeno Frosune, ew, you don't want that. You would never, if you called Caesar Augustus humble, you're such a humble leader, he'd have you beaten with rods right in front of him. Like, don't you dare call me that, it's disgusting, right? So we have this term in our language, I think, because of the influence of Christianity, maybe, but the point is, Paul's saying, you need to do something really weird. In humility, value others above yourself. Not looking for your own interests, but each of you for the interests of who? Of others. Look out for others. In your relationships with one another, here's where I want you to look. Now, again, all eyes were on the ladder. All eyes were fixed on what they had always known, what was comfortable, what their default factory settings were in the Roman world. It's climb up, climb up, step on heads if need be, and grasp and claw and make sure your honor is intact and rising. Paul goes, okay, I want you to take your eyes off that ladder. I want to show you something weird. And he says, here's what I want to show you. Have the same mind as Jesus Christ, who in being the very nature God, or the term morphe, like form, literally saying, and I think this is uh, talking about honor and rank, 
saying he was literally, if we're talking about social status and the ladder, so if, if Caesar's up top here, right, I'm not going to the top. I told some people last service I would go to the top, but I'm not going to do it. If Caesar is here, Jesus is like way, way, like, like on the ceiling. He's God. Like God. Like the gods don't come downstairs. Okay, sometimes they do. Maybe Jupiter cruises on down to have a little rendezvous with somebody. But when they come down, they do it for some quick pleasure or status, and they run right back up. Being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own own advantage. Literally something to just sit back, put his hands behind his head, and go, I'm going to relax in the hot tub of being God. This is so nice. This is so good. The temperature is great up here. I'm not going to waste my time with you people. No, in the very nature of God, didn't consider this equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the nature of a servant, and being made, found in human likeness. Now, this is all, immediately, there are some people here in this Roman auditorium that are getting very uncomfortable with me saying that. They're going, what? God became human. Okay, so he makes his way down. Now he's on the ladder. He's like, from the heavens to the ladder. But hey, maybe he became Caesar for a day. No, he became human making himself a slave. So God, let me get this straight, comes downstairs, not emperor, not uh, elite freedborn person, not day laborer who's free, but a slave. I got to go throw up. That's disgusting. That is wrong and backwards and wrong and backwards and wrong and backwards. Taking on the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of a human, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself... By becoming obedient to death. Stop! Gods don't die. There's one thing we know about them. They don't die. They do a lot of things, but they don't cease to exist in their sort of mode of operation. Gods don't die. And if gods became a human for a weekend romp, they certainly were not going to be in the business of dying in that skin they take on. And you're telling me he died. And then Paul says, oh, you're feeling a little nauseous? Let me tip this thing all the way over for you. Being humble, he humbled himself, being obedient to death, even death on a cross. You would be very familiar with crosses. Crosses were the things set up at Roman crossroads outside of every major city. You would have seen them since you were a little kid. Crosses were places where you watched rebellious, insubordinate slaves suffer and die sometimes for a week. That's who died on crosses. Free people didn't die on crosses. Roman citizens didn't die on crosses. Emperors definitely didn't die on crosses. And gods don't die on crosses. It's backwards. And yet Paul is taking the church all the way there. He's showing a picture of Jesus who is so far above in honor and status and power and luxury and privileges and just the wonders of being God. But rather than sit up there and go, I'm going to enjoy this. He comes all the way downstairs to meet us in our darkest hour and to meet our deepest needs. He uses all that to serve others. And then he continues. He goes, now let me tell you how the Father felt about this, Paul says. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, basically living dead, everyone, 
and every tongue will acknowledge Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. In other words, Paul says, I'm gonna show you something you're gonna think is gross. Watch Jesus. Boom, downstairs, slave dies a slave death. God looks at it and goes, Oh, that's so delicious and wonderful. The Father goes, that's exactly how we need to be human, which is using whatever we have, whatever God has given us, and we ask this question, how can I use this to bless others? How can I use this wonder to bless others? And God says, you did it. This is exactly it, and he gives them all the glory. And so Jesus' way, let's not miss this, is going to be very different, right? It's kind of like, like, like that a little more, right, than, than perhaps um, uh, fighting, plotting, and scheming your way up a ladder for your own honor and your own comfort. Now listen to this. Paul's motley ministry crew. There is one place where they were seriously weird And Paul loved it. Paul couldn't get enough of it. Paul wanted to show this off constantly. He says in, I'm just going to give two case studies because we don't have all day to go over all of Paul's network. But just two case studies in Philippians. Philippians 2 verse 19. He says this to the crew. Okay, I hope to send, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Oh, I want you to meet Timothy. You've got to meet Timothy. Timothy's got to come to you soon. Why? That I might be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him. Stop. Like, I have no one else like Timothy. He is creme de la creme. He's the good stuff. He's the 30-year aged. He's the one that you have to meet. Why? I don't have anyone else like this guy. What about him makes him so special? What about him makes him stand out? If you ask me that, and I'll get to it, I'm just leaving you on a cliffhanger for a second. Don't you read your Bible. I'll tell you when you can. Like, if you ask me, what are the things that make people stand out in ministry? And if you ask me, as like a weird student of evangelical culture, what are the things that make evangelicals excited about when it comes to leadership? There are things. I like good communicators that get you. Whoa! I like people with some plan of action that they can make happen and bring people together and execute. And look what we did! As one! They got an engine on them. They got a motor on them. They're getting things done. I like creative people that are just artistic and brilliant. They go, wow, let's try this and color this. That fires me up. I like good looking people. I like people like, well, they look good. I love to watch them do their thing. Oh, it's so nice to watch. And you know something? I'm not alone in that sort of proclivity or inclination. If you look at like major headliners at like Christian conferences across the nation, and you look and see like what? What are these people, how are they being sold to sell tickets? Like, what, In what ways are they being advertised? Typically, the list is things like, here's who they are. Here's what they've done. Here's all the great accomplishments that they've done. Check them out, and there's a nice, beautiful headshot. Come to the conference, and it sells tickets. I'm not bashing. By the way, there's some, those conferences are amazing. But it does give us a hint as to the things that make people stick out to us. Look what made Timothy stick out to Paul. Look what got Paul so fired up. Like, oh, you got to meet this guy. He says this. I have no one else like him who genuinely is concerned for your welfare. For everyone else, they look out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Who genuinely is concerned for your welfare, not that of their own. That's what makes Timothy so delicious. He tastes it, goes, oh, that's so good. 
And, and a few verses later, he mentions Epaphroditus. And he says, oh, I want to send Epaphroditus to you. Yeah, you remember he was ill? He almost died serving you and serving me. But thank the Lord he, he didn't die. Otherwise, well, I'd be so bummed out. I have sorrow upon sorrow, and so would you. But he's better, and he's coming to see you. And boy, he cares about you. And that's what makes him so delicious. I love taking my son to yogurt land. It's like, it's like wine tasting for kids, right? They get the little things like, ooh, I like this one. Oh, this is delicious. And, and so taking my son to yogurt land is like reward. And we're in there. And my son, is five, he's going to be five on Friday. Woohoo, Brixton. He's going to be five on Friday. This kid, like, he picks his flavors and toppings purely based on how they look. So, like, he looks at a picture. That's cool. I want that. It's like a watermelon sorbet. Then he went, oh, I want that. It's like a peanut butter. Like, okay, that's not going to maybe, okay, son, go for it, right? And then he picks the topic boba, like neon boba balls and all these weird things. And, and it looks so delicious. It looks so cool. It's like, whoa, those zazing, zazoo. That's what they sound like, I guess, when you eat them. And, and it looks so cool and fun and flashy. And he never finishes his bowl. Because it always tastes disgusting. It's like, I'm done, Daddy. I'm not, I don't want this anymore. Right? Like, that's so how I roll. And I think how we often roll is we get so excited about the exterior, the external, or all these secondary or tertiary, like, bedazzlements. When we look at people that we're like, yeah, that's the person I want. That's who's really doing some great work for God. Yay, put them in the front. And what I love is this picture that Paul gives us is a picture inspired by Jesus. He goes, if you're going to follow after Jesus, you're following him downstairs, taking whatever you have, whatever God has given you. And instead of sitting around, by the way, if you look around this area we live in, let's just say in the U.S., then let's take it even further, Los Angeles, then let's take it even further, like the sort of Palos Verdes, Redondo Beach, kind of towards the area. We got a lot of stuff. Now, we can either sit around and feel a little morbid guilt about it. Oh, man, I feel so bad that I have so much stuff. You know, people are hungry and, gosh, shame on me. Oh, well, I'm going to get yogurt land, you know. Like, we can either sit there or how I think Jesus would have us think of it is don't sit around feeling bad about what you have. Like Jesus, sit around and go, how can I use all of this? How can I put this together in cool ways to serve others? That's the biggest question, and that's what makes Timothy's life so delicious, and Epaphroditus' life so delicious, delicious, Stephanus' life so delicious, Yudia and Syntyche's life so delicious, Junia's life so delicious, Priscilla's life so delicious, Phoebe's life so delicious, all of Paul's ministry network that he wants to highlight, it's not because they're powerful, rich, good-looking, well-spoken. Many of them were, but it's because they're hard to say, how do I use all this to serve others? like Jesus, how do I swim up the current in our culture and in their culture that says, well, that stuff's kind of for you and your family. That's why you have it. You, you've been given it. The gods blessed you with it or you earned it or whatever the, the, the thing we say. So use it to go ahead and titillate yourself. Yay! All day long. Rather, the question is, how do I use all this to serve others? And if that becomes a burning question in your heart and mind and life, you have an example to look to in it. That's Jesus. And it's also really, and I mean this with all my heart, really, really fun. And it's, and it's, and it's right. Not out of a sense of like the mean school teacher told you to do it, you better do it, and it's the right thing to do. I mean like it just feels right. It just is right. It corresponds with what it means to be human. We had this awesome, I'll, I'll close with the story, 
Hume Lake story, and, and the crew's going up to Hume, and like, oh, my heart is up there with them. My heart is on the bus. They're probably in Tulare right now. Oh, dairy farms of Tulare. Uh, two years ago, this incredible moment, you know, our youth pastor, Matt, he is exactly, I, I feel the same way about him as Paul feels about Timothy. I, I go, Matt, here is somebody that genuinely cares for the welfare of the people that he's serving. Like, genuinely cares for it. Two years ago at Hume Lake, there's this one day where all of the churches get their own church day. There's about a thousand kids up there. There's a bunch of different churches. And you get a church, like, three-hour block where you can do whatever you want. A lot of people go to the pool. They say, okay, we're going to do kickball on the lawn. Let's go for a hike. And Matt had this idea, and he pitched it to all of us, uh, the leaders there. And he goes, hey, what if, what if our three-hour block, we ask the head facilities person, we go, what's the job that's kind of the biggest bummer job takes a lot of time, that people have been doing all summer long, the staff up there, what's that job and, and that high schoolers could do for them for the three hours and give them a break? And they're like, you're going to the kitchen if you want to do that. And so the leaders were all, yeah, let's do it. Let's serve them for the three-hour block. Let's go serve. And we pitch it to the students. Mind you, these are our students who are some of the best and brightest. They have a lot of great stuff. Their lives are pretty awesome. And you would expect, like, oh, really? I don't want to do that pitched the idea to them, they were so excited, like, yeah, yeah, and maybe we could do this, and maybe we could do that, let's buy them all milkshakes, too, we'll buy the staff milkshakes and send them out. The students, for three hours, rolled up their sleeves, hosed stuff down, like, wiped down tables, washed dishes, sang songs, got to know some people that they would normally have never seen that whole week at camp, and for three hours, the energy and the purity and the beauty of that room, you could feel it. And what was it? It was the feeling of following Jesus in a small thing like that. And afterwards, for many of them you talked to, that was the thing that sticks with them. I remember I spent that three hours, and it was like the greatest part of camp. I was washing dishes and watching this amazing team that's been doing it all summer, watching them enjoy a milkshake and kind of hang out. Like, the reason why it feels so good, the reason why it seems so good, the reason why you're just like, I want to keep doing this, is because, indeed, that's what you were meant for. So what does retirement look like with this question in mind? How do I use whatever I have to serve others? How can I creatively serve them? What does it look like emerging in your career and getting to new levels of influence with this question in mind? How can I serve others? What does it mean to be with a new home, a new marriage, a new season in life to ask the question, okay, I'm empty nester now. So how can I use what I have? What does it mean to be married and say, how can I use our marriage to serve us? What does it mean to be single and say, how can I use my singleness to serve and love others? To be rich, poor, to be talkative or really quiet, to be really creative or really organized. Normally those two don't go together. How can I use this to serve others? So that, to me, is a question I want to keep asking. I want to encourage all of us. I think this is the church, and I'm really serious. River Church is a place that I think asks that question a lot. Y'all do. Y'all do. And whether you're here for the first week, you probably will eventually ask that question a lot. Maybe you do now. But I just want to say, it's not like, come on, church, wake up and serve. It's more like this. Keep going. Like, go next level with that question. Maybe think bigger. Think more creative. Think smaller, maybe. What can I do this afternoon just to love and care for others? Because in doing so, we follow Paul's motley ministry crew, our ancestral tradition. We follow that. And in following them, we are following 
the apostle himself. And in following the apostle, ultimately, we are following Christ, swimming upstream in some pretty awesome ways. I'm going to, um, I'm going to pray, and we're going to transition over to communion. And um, for some of you, especially those of you, this is like, it's not like a product placement in the middle of the message, but uh, for some of you that are, uh, your, your kids, your students are at Hume, or maybe they're not, but, but, but you want to think about how to care for your students, they're going to be having these experiences this week. I don't know what it's going to be, but their worlds are going to get rocked in some pretty cool ways. And they're going to come home bright-eyed and excited, like, oh my gosh, this and then this. And you're going to be like, what do I do with all this energy and all this passion? Well, guess what? We have a sage, I think, of youth ministry, Bill McPhee, who's actually on Wednesday night going to have an opportunity for you to learn and think through how do we foster that vision that these students have caught, that experience that they've had. How do we do this? I want to encourage everyone uh, to come out to that. I'm going to close in prayer. Lord, thank you that you took your holiness, you took your splendor, you took your power and all the accoutrements of what it means to be you. And rather than just sitting back, arms folded, enjoying it, you used it and emptied yourself to serve us in our darkest hour. And I thank you that, Lord, in our own small ways, daily, weekly, decadely, we can follow you in that. So I pray for myself right now. Lord, show me where in my life I can continue to use what you've given me, the blessings you've given me, the abilities, the resources, the the relationships, to be able to just serve and love others. Keep my eyes on that. Keep my eyes off my own empire, my own ladder, my own climb. Keep my eyes on others and on you, most importantly. In the name of Jesus, as his followers, we pray. Amen. So we're going to have communion as we do every single week, remembering Jesus' body given for us and his blood poured out for us on that cross that we might have life in his name. And we remember that and proclaim that every single week. So at your own pace, you can come up here and take some bread and dip it in the juice, and, um, and then we'll close off.